Well, first of all, it is always good to be back at Lord of Life. Sometimes when I walk in here, I almost feel like I've never left, particularly as I look at this pulpit and the communion table and the baptistry, which were made down by an inmate at Angola Prison a number of years ago. And if Donald were still there, thank God he's out, I would love to take pictures and take them back and show them to him. Uh, coming up here, I jokingly said I'm on the I'm Really Old Tour, uh, because yesterday at 10.30 in the morning I did a wedding of a former high school student um, who was actually in the high school class with my daughter. And if that's not bad enough, today I have the privilege of baptizing another high school student's grandchild. That's really cool. And I also get to see Jess and John again, whose wedding I did, I don't know, about a year and a half, two years ago. So it's really kind of like old home. We're good to see a lot of familiar faces and so many new ones as well. Uh, when I talked to Pastor Matt about preaching, he said, you're preaching through the, God, or through the book of Acts. And I thought, way cool, because we just got done teaching Acts down in prison. But I got to tell you, we did the entire book of Acts in one day, four days in a row. I'm not going to try that this morning. Uh, you die, I die. So I, I, I'm only taking part of, he told me, 16, 17, and 18. And I'm only going to touch on three verses out of this. It'll still take me a long time. But reading through these chapters for today, I, I was struck by Paul's speech here to the Areopagus, mostly struck by the similarity between ancient Athens and modern-day America. Uh, for all of the obvious differences in culture and language, there is a similar approach to the problems of life. In fact, there are three evidences. If you look back at Paul's day, 2,000 years later, we have the same problems here in America. Now, it's obvious that the men of Athens worshipped intellect. It was also obvious that they loved newness and they loved the endless discussion of innovative ideas. And they valued tolerance and diversity as seen by their ever-expanding pantheon of gods. Now, you ought to ask yourself, if you live that kind of life, what does it produce? Well, I've been to tell you because we're living in it now. When you worship intellect, you get educated ignorance. And we've got a lot of educated, ignorant people in our world today. One only needs to look at Facebook when you love newness, it will always present nothing but dissatisfaction. And when you exalt tolerance, you get endless uncertainty, always seeking for the truth that you never, ever seem to find. See, Athens knew everything there was to know about knowledge, but they did not know God. And as a result, because they did not know God, they didn't know what to do with their sins. And that meant they didn't know where they could turned to get those sins taken care of. They had no peace. They had no hope of heaven whatsoever. And this leads me to the following crucial point. It is actually the title to my sermon. This is the longest title I think I've ever used for a sermon. It is possible to be highly educated and deeply religious and still be totally ignorant about God. I'm not going to ask how many ignorant folks we have here today. I'm not going to. Well, I saw one hand just shoot up. Okay. Okay, yeah, I believe that. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, Athens knew everything that was knowable, but didn't know God. See, it's kind of an apt description, I think, of our own country today. 
uh, when I put something on Facebook not long ago about what I was going to preach, somebody gave me an alternate uh, sermon title. It was Intellectual Giants and Moral Pygmies. And I could have used that title today, too. It's just that we know more and more and more about the details of life and less and less and less, it seems, about the true meaning of life and where God fits into that. So here's Paul standing in this big gathering of intellectual giants who were in this situation, highly educated, deeply religious, and totally ignorant when it came to knowing God. Now, in chapter 17, what Paul has told them so far is this. You're very religious, but you don't know God. So let me tell you who this God is. And then in the little text I'm going to use today, verses 26, 27, and 28, he's going to add another thought, and the thought is this. God is closer than you think. And I would even say that this morning, friends. God is closer right now than you, you think. Maybe you didn't even expect to run into God this morning when you got here. I don't know. See, Paul is trying to show them that God is not far off, but he has made himself amazingly accessible to everybody. And this is a message that we need to repeat continuously as we walk out. When you've got your gospel-sharing face on, and that is, if you don't know God, it's not God's fault. Let me tell you about it. See, God has already done everything he can do so that you can have a relationship with him. I mean, when I think about it, that God who created this world has left his fingerprints and his footprints all over the place. He has sent prophets. He has sent poets. He has sent kings. He, he has sent all kinds of people to share his message. He even sends me. He even sends Matt to share that message. God has made it perfectly clear that his heart yearns for people to know who he is as Lord and Savior. So let's take a look at what Paul suggests about what God did to prove this to them. Now, see, sometimes it's our own sinful pride that keeps us from turning to God. We just we're just too proud to do that. See, without ever using the word, Paul actually strikes at the notion that these men of Athens thought they were somehow way better than everybody else. But he starts out by saying, guess what? God created humanity from one man. That's verse 26. One man, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now, if you dig deeper in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it said, Let us, and that's God's, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image. And again, we live in a world today where we like to create our own image of who we are. But this is in God's image. So, And then it adds, he said, and male and female, he created them. So what we've got is this order of God, and then Adam, and then Eve, and then all the rest of us all the way down. So we have Lucy today, and everybody else. We're all part of what God created. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, the prophet says, Have we not all one Father? Do you ever hear that phrase, who's your daddy? That's not a great phrase to use sometimes. But you know, if anybody ever asked me, who's your daddy? I'd say, well, he's my father in heaven. That's my daddy. He's my daddy because he saw to it that I was knit together in my mother's womb, just like little John the Four over there. He's the God who renewed me at the waters of baptism, like little John is going to be renewed in a little while. I became part of another family. 
See, this struck hard at the pride of these Athenians who somehow thought that they were better than other people. For them, there were Athenians and then there were barbarians, which is everybody else. Kind of like the Jews. Jews and Samaritans or Gentiles. They thought their city was the greatest city in Greece, so they felt themselves just even a little bit better than ordinary Greek people. Now, Paul kind of pokes a little hole in their balloon by telling them, guess what, guys, you're not any different than anybody else. See, the theory of racial superiority has always led to horrible results in history. One only needs to go back to World War II and see how the Nazis elevated the pure Aryan race. And what happened? They ended up murdering 12 million Jews, Slavs, Ukrainians, Russians, and others deemed inferior and unworthy. Let's move forward a few years even to our own country where this belief in white superiority fuels slavery. It fueled segregation. It brought about the Jim Crow laws. And against all of those evils of racism, Paul says, look, folks, we all came from the same place. We all came from the same stock. We're all fruit from the same branch. We were all born into the same human family. And see, that's the basis of reconciliation in in, in Christianity among the races and ethnic groups and whatever. It's also confirmed by common sense. Now, by God's grace, I've been privileged to be able to preach and teach all over the place, whether it be in Jamaica or Haiti or in Africa or Asia or whatever. And the more you travel around the world, what you discover is everybody's pretty much the same. Now, they may look a little different. Their skin is a slightly different color than yours. Their background is different. Their language is different. Their customs are different. But when you get to know them, We're really all the same. We have the same longings. We have the same regrets. We have the same kind of dreams and hopes and the same need to love and be loved. We've got this same desire to bear children and raise families. And, uh, you know, and even the same sense that there must be a God out there somewhere, but we don't quite know how to get to him. And guess what? That gives us an opportunity to bring the gospel into those situations. And in the process, sometimes get rid of all that racial prejudice we have. See, the Bible tells us there are four things that we need to remember all the time. One of them is that all people, and you can underline that, I don't care, all people are equally created in God's image. And if not mistaken, that might even find its way into our Constitution. All are deeply loved by God. Every last one of us. All are stained and tainted by sin. Now, Jess and John, you probably figured out, that's a sinful little butter you got there. I mean, he, he came out as selfish as can be. It's all about him. We are conceived in sin, we are born in sin, and here's my, here's my seminary word for you, Matt. Concupiscence. We are just plain simple what? We are sin. But, and there's always a great but here. But we're all capable of being redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, those four facts form the basis for Christian equality. That's what Acts 10, 34 means when it says God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't like Missouri Synod Lutherans more than he he likes other denominations. Paul's point is we, we all descended from the same person, that's God. 
There's no room for inordinate pride or this feeling of superiority. We're all in this together, and we all need the loving touch of Jesus. Now, here's the second thing that God did. He guided history by his own plan. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. That means there was God's direct involvement in the affairs of human history. I mean, think about it. It is God who makes all of the nations. He is the one who determined the times when those nations existed. He's the one who determines when those nations go under. He knows their boundaries. And sometimes theologians... When they talk about this, they, they call this the hidden counsels of God. It just means that there's stuff that God is doing that's not necessarily written down for us in the Bible. But looking back, sometimes we just kind of say, wow, God really is in control. He raises up a nation for a while and puts that nation down. He raises up a leader here. That leader disappears. See, he has the final say in every battle. God has every ruler rising to power. He's behind that. Every coup, every election, yes, God is even working behind elections, every government edict. And we generally don't see the big picture, even when we kind of look in the rearview mirror. But scripture assures us that all the events of life, even when they seem to be out of control, God is at work in the scenes. Now, that's hard for us to understand. Now, I live in Branson, Missouri now. Y'all know what happened in Branson two days ago. Seventeen people out for a pleasure ride on one of the ducks. Seventeen out of thirty-one die. Where is God in that situation? That's a hard question. But God is behind the scenes working something out of that. I can tell you that in the next days and weeks, you're going to probably hear testimonies of faith. Even the lady who lost nine members of her family said, I don't know, but I know God is in it. There's a woman of faith. See, Paul has now just informed these Athenians that they're just like everybody else, and God has brought their nation to a certain point, and that God is behind whatever is going on. And we learn that purpose in verse 27. Why did God do it? Well, first of all, so somehow through whatever happens, we would seek him. Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered why you were born in a particular time and place. Uh, you know, after all, you, know, you could have been born in Botswana. You could have been born in Bolivia or India or New Zealand. I mean, why did you end up where you are right now? Well, Paul tells us that God clearly arranged Everything in your life so that you might seek him. That was the goal. You are where you are right now because God wants you to seek him and to find him. And he desires a personal relationship with you. So what difference does this truth make for us? Four different things. One is we are made to know God. Do you know that? That's we're created with this missing piece inside this desire to know who God is. The longing in our hearts to understand our place in this universe. But we also need to remember that sin has blinded us so we can't find him. And that's the result of the fall. And we keep groping anyway. People that aren't even believers are still groping. These are the people we need to be talking to. 
But see, no one will ever find God unless God reveals himself. And that's where the saving grace of Jesus comes in. That's why there's a couple of things needed at this particular point. And it's this. We need to have someone preach the gospel. That's the work of all of us. There's a word I really don't like. I hear it quite often. People say, so how are you enjoying retirement? What? (laughs) Retirement's not a biblical word. Why would I want to use a non-biblical word? Retire is what you do at night. And re-enlist is what you do in the morning. That's what I do. Every night I go to sleep. And in the morning it's like, okay, God, now what? Now what? Now, many of you know I reposition and refresh myself from time to time. That's good, too. We need to do those things so that we can preach the gospel, to share the gospel at any place we can do it. Whether it's in La Fox, Illinois, or whether it's in Lincoln, Illinois, or whether it was in Lincoln, Nebraska a couple of weeks ago, or whether it's going to be in prison, or maybe, God willing, when Nancy and I maybe get to go back to India in November, or, you know, I've been asked to teach in Nepal and to go to Ghana, wherever that would be, you get up the next morning and you do it because there's no retirement. And anybody who's of any age here who says to themselves from time to time, let's let the young people do it, we're done. No, you're not. Shame on you. You're never done. Every day, opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And then to do what? Let the Holy Spirit open those eyes. See, it's our job to share the gospel. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to draw them to the Lord. Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God. For he will freely pardon. Luke 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. If you seek, you find. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, here's the second reason God did this. It's that we would discover that he's not far away. There is a verse in here that I, I really like. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. I mean, let's just think about that for a moment. In him we live and move and have our being. See, our very life is held in God's hands. And I hope you understand how completely dependent you are on God for the life that you possess. I mean, your life is not really yours, which which cries out and says that you have no right to take anybody else's life either. If that life is God's life. It comes from God and God will take you back when he chooses to do so. James 4.14 talks about our life is like a mist. It's here at God. I like taking a cup of coffee and sitting by Lake Tannicombe and watch the fog on the lake in the morning. And if I sit there long enough, the fog eventually disappears. It gets burned off. So whether you live 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, or like the one-year-old who passed away this last week, it's all a vapor and it begins to disappear the day that you are born. And it also says, in him we move. So I'm going to ask you, to, I want you to raise your hand above your head just a moment. Raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to have an altar call. And <laughs> okay, but wave it around a little bit. Okay, you put your hand down. Now, uh, what made your arm move? 
Well, you probably say, well, my, my muscles did, if you got any. Uh, who told your muscles to move? Well, you'd say, well, the electrical impulses, you know, where did the electrical impulses come from? Well, you'd say, well, it comes from the brain through the nervous system. Now, how does all of that work? Well, I'm not even sure a scientist can explain it. But here's the more important question. Where did the power come from to make all of that happen? Well, it comes from God. You cannot raise your hand or lift your foot or open your mouth to speak unless God gives you the strength to do so. We move because he first moves in us. And then it says we have our being. Now, have you ever wondered why you are the way you are? Deneen, because a lot of people want to know why you are the way you are. All I'm saying is, where did your personality come from? Who gave you your unique genetic design? I mean, we know that inside of your body is a DNA code that contains every secret of your physical existence. Uh, for one person, it means you've got blue eyes and brown hair and you're five foot seven and you're good at tennis, you're bad at math, you have a tendency to overeat, you've got a birthmark behind your right knee, uh, plus a few more other million details. Everything about you is in your DNA, that double helix code that contains all of your secrets. Now, the question is, where did that DNA come from? It came from God. Psalm 139, verse 13 says, He knit us together in our mother's womb. That things that make you unique come from God. Now it also says we are his offspring. We come from God. We answer to God. We depend on God. And we can do nothing without God. We are all sons and daughters of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, is it possible to be God's offspring and still not his child? Certainly. By not knowing who God is. By not knowing who Jesus is. Not receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I'd ask you this morning, friends, do you know Jesus? You know him really well? Or is it you just kind of know stuff about him? See, the most important thing in the world is that you know Jesus. I make no apologies for saying that. That's the most important thing. It's got nothing to do with how much you put in the offering plate. It's got nothing to do with how often you pack a pew on a Sunday morning. It has to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know him personally? Have you ever trusted him completely as Savior and Lord? Have you ever opened your heart to him and said, Lord, I want you and I want all of you. Now, when I preached a sermon like this down in prison... Uh, quite often I would ask guys, you know, are, are you ready to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You've never done it before. And guys will come down. They'll walk the aisle. Now, that's not a really Lutheran thing, so I'm not going to do a non-Lutheran thing this morning. But I am going to pray a prayer in closing. And I'd like to have you just kind of pray along silently with me as we do so. Dear Lord Jesus, we need you in our life. We freely confess that we have broken your laws, and deep in our heart we know that we are sinners. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for rising from the dead. We truly believe you are the Son of God. Thank you for loving us when we were far away from you. So here and now, I trust you as my Savior. Come into our hearts and save us. Make us a brand new person. And we want to turn away from our old life and Pledge to live for you from this day forward. 
So set us free from hatred and bitterness or prejudice of any kind. Fill us with your love. Teach us what it means to live as a true Christ follower. And may others see Jesus in us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, if you happen to pray that prayer as kind of a personal expression of your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you to share that with someone today. Come and share it with me. I'd love to hear that. Come and share with Pastor Matt. It would warm his heart to know that someone said, Jesus is my Savior. Share it with a friend, share it with a co-worker, share it with a family member. But more than anything else, whatever your relationship with Jesus Christ means to you, share it with someone else. Tell the good news to everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.